in the beginning, God spoke. Before you spoke your first word, God spoke. In eternity past, he was completely content within the fellowship of the Trinity. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Completely pleased, completely satisfied, completely delighted. Nothing needed to be said. But God chose to speak. He said, let there be light. And out of the darkness came brilliant light. And he called it day. He said, let there be land. And out of the seas came bursting forth mountains and sandy beaches. He gazed on it and said, it is good. Nothing else needed to be said. But God chose to continue speaking. Let there be a backdrop. And whizzing into space came fiery planets spinning around and around. God saw the brilliance and he said, it is good. He could have stopped speaking then. But he wouldn't. The perfect fellowship of the Trinity said, let's fill the water and fill the land and fill the air. And in that instance, birds flapped their wings and darted in and out of valleys. Fish schooled, lions roared, monkeys swung, grasshoppers jumped, and ants marched. God saw his creation dance and he said, it is good. And it was. He could have, he had every right to stop speaking. But once again, he opened his mouth and said, let there be humans. And in the council of the Godhead, it was decided that humans would stand erect. Have five, have ten fingers and ten toes. Hair on their heads and a nose on their face. These would be God's crowning creation. Adam and Eve, they were lovely because he loved them. God had spoken. It was no longer merely good. This time it was very good. The end? No. It didn't stay very good for very long. God's crowning creation would make a crowning mistake. Mistake. <laughs> That's not God's word for it. Sin. That's God's word for it. Adam and Eve didn't see God's creation as very good or even see him as very good. They partook of some forbidden things. That's why to this day you have a desire for the forbidden. It's in your bloodstream, passed on from Adam and Eve. That's when it all began to fall apart. God's perfect paradise, ruined by sin. When God looked at what man had created, he didn't see brilliance. He saw brokenness. When God looked at what man had created, he didn't say it is good. 
God didn't say anything. Would he ever speak again? Would he ever grace his creation with his words again? It was no longer very good. From this point on, it would always be very bad. Time passed. How much? We don't know. But finally, Adam, Eve, he didn't have to speak. He chose to speak. He told them, I brought you into the world, but you brought sin into the world. You heard other voices that you deemed more attractive than my voice, more compelling than my voice, more convincing than my voice. He kicked them out of the garden, sent them packing. Before they walked out of the gates, God in grace spoke. I'll give you two things as you leave. First, I'll give you clothing. I'll clothe you with these skins, a slate of lamb to cover your shame. Secondly, I'll send you with a promise, a salvation promise. I'm sending a rescuer to come after you, not because you are good, but because I am gracious. I will not leave you in your sin. I'm sending one to fight for you. Satan will bruise his heel, but he will bruise Satan's head. Adam and Eve leave. They exit the gates and look back. Angels with flaming swords guard the entrance. There's no chance of ever breaking back in. I can only imagine the angels' conversations at that moment elbowing one another, glad we aren't one of them. The theme of salvation dominates the Bible. It's everywhere. Why does God write a book and weave a scarlet thread of salvation throughout? God wants his young lambs and his seasoned sheep to focus on his salvation, to consider his salvation, to give intense, dedicated thought to his salvation. Salvation isn't something you outgrow. Salvation isn't a door you once walked through. It's a home you now live in. You will never plumb the depths of God's salvation. It is a bottomless well, and you can draw on it daily, and it never runs dry. Peter's first three words to us in verse 10 are, notice, concerning this salvation. What salvation is he talking about? Look at the five previous words. The salvation of your souls. Consider your salvation. In our text, Peter wants you to view salvation from the perspective of four different agents. The prophets who studied it. The Holy Spirit who inspired it. The preachers who proclaimed it. And the angels who examine it. Here's a grid to help you process this exposition. The Old Testament prophets' prophecies centered on salvation. Verse 10. 
the eternal spirit's inspiration centered on salvation. Verse 11. The first century preacher's messages centered on salvation. Verse 12a. The pre-human angel's examination centers on salvation. Verse 12b. Four agents, the prophets, the, the spirit, the preachers, and the angels. And there's a time element with each agent. Old Testament prophets, eternal spirit, first century preachers, and pre-human angels. We're going to walk those out one at a time, so don't worry about writing all of that down now. Let's deal with this first. The Old Testament prophets' prophecies centered on salvation. Notice verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Prophets began in Deuteronomy 18. After the garden, God in grace continued speaking. Speaking to his people with an audible voice. At Mount Sinai, his people asked him to no longer hear his voice and the things that accompanied it like fire, lest they die. God agreed. I will raise up prophets and I will put my words in their mouths. And this is where the office of prophet was instituted. From now on, when God wanted to get his message to his people, he'd get a guy, put a brown uniform on him, stick him in a brown truck, and send him parroting his message. Prophets were God's ancient delivery boys. Moses was the first, but many would put on that uniform. These men would stand in the presence of God to receive the message of God and then go speak that word to the people of God. Now, it sounds like a glorious calling, doesn't it? <laughs> what a prestigious position. One would think lots of people would be standing in line to apply for such a position. Not really. They were outcasts, always telling the people what they didn't want to hear, despised by everyone from the common man to kings. On some occasions, what God called his prophets to do was just weird. Sometimes he didn't want his prophets to merely speak his word, but act it out. <laughs> you, you may think preachers have a tough job today. It's nothing compared to what one of his prophets, Micah, had to do. He had to go around naked, howling like a jackal and mourning like an ostrich. I get a little frightened when guys preach in skinny jeans. Imagine this. It's like the old Ray Stevens song, The Streak. It's a Christian song. You've probably never heard of it. I remember Sarah reading that chapter in Micah to our kids one time, and our son Stafford kept asking, is he still naked, Mom? Is he still naked? <laughs> Why would Micah do this? It seems quite inappropriate. Well, he's enacting a message that the people should be ashamed of themselves. Shame comes along with public nakedness. Adam and Eve demonstrated this after their sin in the garden. God asked his prophets to do some crazy stuff. Jeremiah walked around preaching with a yoke around his neck. Ezekiel 
had to lay on his left side for 390 days and then on his right side for 40 days. That's over a year laying down, preaching from your side. Isaiah had to walk naked and barefoot for three years. I don't have a picture of that. <laughs> God commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. He said, love your unfaithful wife like God loves his unfaithful wife. It was a living parable, a redemptive drama. The sinner Gomer committed, the sin Gomer committed against Hosea, Israel committed against God. She's running around on Hosea and God says, my people are running around on me. God and his prophet are both married to prostitutes. God was saying, before you preach to my harlots, I want you to marry a harlot. The job of a prophet was not always glorious. I want you to know that. God's call on their lives made their lives more difficult. Their message was never well received. These prophets prophesied of a coming judgment a lot. But simultaneously, they prophesied of a coming grace. Notice verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They prophesied of a grace coming to you. Grace, that's God's favor to hell-deserving people. John MacArthur says it well. Salvation concerns primarily the divine act of saving sinners, whereas grace encompasses the entire motive behind God's saving. The verse continues, these prophets searched and inquired. From Moses to Malachi, all of the Old Testament prophets were fascinated by the promises of salvation. One pastor pointed out that the word searched comes from a verb that means to mount an intensive investigation, to study diligently and with painstaking effort. Stephen Davey says the next word, inquire, is used of a lion following the scent of his prey. In other words, the prophets with all diligence spent their lives hunting down the implications of these salvation promises. It led them to study earlier parts of the scripture. Haggai studied Isaiah. Isaiah studied poems and songs of David. Daniel studied Jeremiah. Peter wants you to see your privilege. The Old Testament prophets looked with eager anticipation at your Mondays. You live in a privileged time. You've got better seats than the prophets. Isaiah is peeking over your shoulder, wishing he could sit where you are. Prophets, men who wrote the Bible, were saying, man, I wish I was you. Oh, oh that's what Isaiah 53 fully meant. Oh, that's how he's going to crush Satan's head. You have a clearer picture than they had. They long to see salvation from your vantage point. My kids listen to this radio drama called Adventures in Odyssey. John Avery Whitaker is kind of the, the OG of the town. He created this imagination station, basically a time machine, where you go back and experience these Old Testament events. 
if the time machine worked in reverse and, and people could jump into the future, these prophets would jump into our time. Isaiah would have gladly time traveled to our day. You are living in the days when salvation has been fulfilled. They lived with promises made. You live with promises kept. The prophets foretold this salvation. Jesus accomplished it. The prophets pointed to one who would bring salvation, but they didn't know his name. No one did until it was revealed to Joseph. Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Peter, our writer, refused to unhitch from the Old Testament. He's convinced that the Old Testament prophets have value for contemporary Christians. There, there's an overarching unity of the Bible. It has many books, but it tells one story, a redemption story, a salvation story. God didn't, didn't give us it all in one drop. He dripped his salvation promises throughout the ages. Muhammad claimed to receive the Quran all at once. The Bible was given over a period of time. There's an unfolding quality of progressive revelation. Which means as you go through it, you are being prepared for what's coming. Hope broadens as God adds promise upon promise upon promise. That's why Jesus was always saying, I am the one whom the prophets testified. They were pointing to me. Secondly, the eternal spirit's inspiration centered on salvation. Notice verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them, that's the prophets, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The phrase, spirit of Christ, is somewhat unusual, occurring elsewhere only in Romans. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. In the Old Testament, this spirit is called the spirit of the Lord. Isaiah 11, Ezekiel 11, the spirit of God, 1 Samuel 11, 2 Chronicles 15. In Acts, the spirit is called the spirit of Jesus. In fact, that same phrase, the spirit of Jesus, prevented Paul from traveling to Bithynia, one of the very provinces to which Peter now writes. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God are all the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit primarily indwelled prophets, priests, and kings. Sporadically, not constantly. Since Pentecost, however, all new covenant believers are indwelled and filled with the spirit at salvation. Permanently. The Holy Spirit came upon these prophets from time to time, but we have a greater privilege. He indwells us as New Testament believers. If you love Christ, you should say, thank you, Holy Spirit. Words on a page alone couldn't save us. That truth has to be revealed to our blind eyes and dead hearts. The Holy Spirit brings salvation to us. 
when God the Father didn't speak audibly to his prophets, God the Holy Spirit moved them to write certain words. And you need to see right off the bat that the prophets were not writing down their best predictions or their best astrological calculations regarding when salvation would come. This salvation is not a novel idea of the prophets. They didn't make it up. The third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, guided their writings. The Holy Spirit has been predicting the salvation of God. The Holy Spirit inspired the prophets' words. Verse 11. Inquiring what person. The prophets were obsessed in a good way about who this person was that was going to bring salvation. And when would he bring it? Verse 11, inquiring what person or time. They wanted to know when. Isaiah said, oh Lord, who? Oh Lord, when? How long, oh Lord? Daniel in chapter 9 asked, how long shall it be? In Habakkuk 2, the prophet asked the Lord, who and when? The prophets hoped upon hope upon hope that it would be fulfilled in their day. R.C. Sproul rightly points out that the prophets did not always understand the things they taught. Not until the coming of Christ and his eventual death and resurrection from the dead did the people fully grasp what Joel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah had spoken of. The Holy Spirit told these prophets that the Messiah, this one who will bring salvation, will first suffer and then be glorified. 700 years before Christ, the Holy Spirit told Isaiah to write the exact sufferings Jesus Christ would face. We sometimes call that book Isaiah's Gospel. Speaking of Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah predicted his sufferings. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah predicted his glory. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this is just a sampling from one book. All the prophets did this. Peter studied the Old Testament. He knew it. But even he struggled to fully understand the suffering Jesus would have to face. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulled out his sword and started swinging to rescue Jesus from suffering. He had to be corrected. You didn't come to rescue me from earthly suffering. I came to rescue you from eternal suffering. It was a misunderstanding shared by the other disciples as well. The Holy Spirit gave us the salvation pattern. First suffering, then glory. Thirdly, first century preachers' messages centered on salvation. 
First century preachers' messages centered on salvation. Notice verse 12a. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. We're going to come back to that phrase in a moment. This is where I want you to concentrate. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you, how do they preach the good news? By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So Peter is referring to past preachers in this verse. Well, current preachers for the first century readers, but past preachers for us 21st century readers. Peter wants them to think about those preachers who brought them the message of salvation. These men who carried the gospel to Asia Minor. These men who are still living and preaching to them. Peter says, God sent more than spirit-inspired prophets for you. He sent spirit-filled preachers to you. Peter writes these men, Peter writes these men who preached the gospel to you, they were enabled. How were they enabled? By the Holy Spirit. There's a spiritual work going on as preaching takes place. The Spirit is enabling the speaker. The Spirit is opening the eyes of the blind. The Spirit is applying revealed truth. The Spirit is comforting. The Spirit is convicting. He is moving. I often repeat the same words as I approach the pulpit that I once read Charles Haddon Spurgeon would repeat in the 1800s as he climbed the stairway to his platform from which he preached. With every step he uttered, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. There are times when I am preaching that I have especially sensed the work of the Holy Spirit. And I usually become aware of it through the unnatural silence. The ever-present coughing ceases. The phone stops ringing. Bringing an almost unnatural quiet to the root through which my words sell like arrows. And I experience a heightened eloquence so that the cadence and volume of my voice intensify the truth I am preaching. And there's nothing quite like fe that feeling knowing that God is using his word for his purposes. By the way, there are a thousand more times when phones are ringing, babies are crying, people are coughing, and the Holy Spirit is still doing the same things because he's not limited by those things. And he's not required to give me a feeling. Peter said salvation was announced to you through preachers. So preachers preached a message of salvation. The term salvation implies rescue. Ultimately, it is God coming to rescue you. But from what? From what are you saved? Are you saved from your sins? Well, yes. Are you saved from hell? Well, yes. But ultimately, he's saving you from the penalty of your sin, which is the wrath of God. Salvation in the Old Testament was the same as salvation in the New Testament. There was no two ways of salvation, an Old Testament way and a New Testament way. There's always been one way of salvation, grace. You saw that in the previous verse. Old Testament people were saved by a future grace. New Testament people are saved by a past grace. 
In the Old Testament, they looked forward to a suffering Christ. In the New Testament, we look backward to a suffering Christ. The promise of salvation was always Christ. And the prophets knew their place in this unfolding drama of redemption. Notice the first part of verse 12. We skipped it. It was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. The the Spirit of Christ said to Jeremiah, Micah, Habakkuk, and Isaiah, you're not serving yourself or even merely your own generation. You are serving saints hundreds of years from now. They will see your prophecy of me, the proof that I am who I say I am, and your words will give them unshakable stability in their lives. The prophets understood their service was for a future generation. The fulfillment of their prophecies was not for them to witness. They were serving. Davy says the word here, serving, paints a picture of someone who spreads the table, who sets the table, but only for someone else to come and eat the meal. Peter is reminding these New Testament believers, listen, what an advantage you have living in these days. No matter how troubled and difficult things get, you're able to pull up a chair to a table that was spread by the prophets and you're able to feast on the revelation and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his New Testament disciples, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. But truly I say unto you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And hear what you hear but did not hear it. Matthew 13. William Barclay tells the story of of watching one night at dusk a blind lamplighter lighting the lamps. And he he would tap his way from lamppost to lamppost, bringing to others a light which he himself would never experience. And so the work of the Old Testament prophets, it brings privilege and light to New Testament preachers. Fourthly, the pre-human angel's examination centers on salvation. The pre-human angel's examination centers on salvation Notice um, last phrase in verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. (laughs) Now it's debated when angels were created. Was it day three? Was it before day one? We don't know exactly when God said let there be angels. But scholars unanimously agree that they were created before human beings. They are pre-human angels. Tim Keller points out that angels are incredibly majestic and powerful beings living in the presence of an eternal God. Yet there is something that has happened on earth which is so stupendous that even these immortal beings experience the persistent longing to look into these things. Now what what are these things? that could possibly and and consistently consume the attention of these God-fixated creatures? The answer? 
salvation. These pre-human angels long to look at human salvation. The angels are obsessed with the gospel. It, it's present tense. They are currently, they currently have an incurable fascination in watching the mysteries of salvation unfold throughout human history. The verbiage here, long to look, literally means straining. The very angels of God are peering over the balconies of heaven, straining to look deeper into this salvation. It's, it's actually the same word used for the followers of Christ peering into the empty tomb. The angels have a holy curiosity. And Peter's point is this. If angels get excited about our salvation, how much more should we? These angels ought not to be more obsessed about salvation than you and me. These angels didn't need to be forgiven. They were without sin. These angels didn't need Jesus to die for them. These angels had never rebelled against God. You and I have. Why do angels long to look at human salvation? Because angels are outsiders to the drama of sin and redemption. Hebrews 12, 16 clearly says that Christ did not die for angels, but for mankind. In other words, only humans were designed to experience the salvation through the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We are told when one person repents, there is joy in heaven among the angels. The angels delight to watch the ministry of Christ unfold in history. Holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Listen to the prophets, church. You are privileged. Listen to the angels, church. You are privileged. After man sinned in the garden, the angel said, I'm glad I'm not one of them. After God revealed his plan to save man from sin, the angel said, I wish I was one of them. The angels will drop their jaws when they see what God has done with you through salvation. The text has been broken down like this. The Old Testament prophets, prophecies centered on salvation. The eternal spirit's inspiration centered on salvation. The first century preacher's messages centered on salvation. The pre-human angel's examination centers on salvation. And so now we're left here. What shall we do with this? How shall we respond to such a great salvation? As we land this plane, I want to give you three ways to take this home. Three ways to take it home. How shall we respond to such a great salvation? Number one, respond to this great salvation by calling out for it. For those of you who are not Christians, you've never experienced salvation, you've never been saved, I want you to listen closely. Make sure you're not misunderstanding salvation. Thinking it was when you should have died in that car accident, but somehow you miraculously survived. 
That's not the salvation we're talking about in this text. I'm thankful you experienced that, but that's temporary. You overcoming a cocaine addiction or your horrible alcohol addiction is not what salvation is. Great for you. I'm happy for you in doing that. But neither of those save you from hell. It's not talking about physical salvation. It's talking about spiritual salvation. You're a sinner. Adam did that for you in the garden. You're a sinner by birth, but also a sinner by choice. So that means you need a rescue. A rescue from your sin. A rescue from hell. A rescue from the wrath of God. God didn't have to do anything. He could have let you die in your sin and spend eternity in hell, but he chose to speak. And he said, let there be salvation. He looked at Christ on the cross, hanging, bloodied, to accomplish salvation, and he said, it is good. And it was. And some of you say, Kyle... That's great. But I don't feel like, I don't feel like I really need salvation. Well, the question is not, do I feel like I need to be saved? The question is, do I need to be saved? You can need to be saved and not know it. In 2017, there were a ton of people partying on the Las Vegas Strip. None of them felt like they needed to be saved. A sniper from the 32nd floor unloaded 1,000 rounds, killing 20 people, wounding 411 people. They had no idea they were in danger until people started running and shouting. So you can see that feeling safe is no proof that you are safe. You may desperately need salvation and, and not feel in any danger at all. Whether you feel it or not, I'm here to tell you that you need it. You've offended a holy God. You say, how? Just by breathing. Your every breath is an affront to a holy God. You need to repent and run to Christ for salvation. Avoid your coming destruction and fall at the beautiful pierced feet of Jesus Christ. How do you respond to this salvation? You respond to this great salvation first by calling out for it. Secondly, you respond to this great salvation by rejoicing in it. Rejoicing in it. Don't live like salvation no longer amazes you. Don't live like you've lost the wonder of it all. Have you gotten over your salvation? Does it still make you high step out of the bed every morning? You've been saved from hell, rescued from sin, spared from wrath. Tell your face about it. Smile. You are letting little earthly inconveniences defeat you, disappoint you. Your greatest problem has been solved. Live like you've been saved. They say, well, Kyle, I've, I'm, I'm educated. Kyle, I've, I've kind of outgrown salvation. I like to concentrate on the doctrinal minutiae all the days of my life. 
Well, I don't know what you call that in academia, but I call that ridiculous. Just say it. God's grace doesn't amaze you anymore. And that's a problem. That's a problem. I'd be a bad pastor to give you a problem and not the solution. So I just happened to bring the solution with me. There's a threefold solution. First, you need to meditate on where you were before God saved you. He pulled some of you out of the gutter. And you're acting like you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps. First, you need to meditate on where you were before God saved you. Secondly, you need to pray that God will give you a clearer view of who you are right now. Because your life is filled with sin and you're blind to it. You are as desperately in need of God's salvation today as you were the day you were converted. Thirdly, discipline yourself to peer into this salvation. Discipline yourself to peer into this salvation. You know what Peter is seeking to do in these three verses? He wants to increase his readers' appreciation for their great salvation in Christ. So how does he do it? He sends them on a study of it, on a study of salvation. And you can almost hear the shouts of joy rolling across the rugged topography of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. They have received this glorious salvation predicted by the prophets and planned by the Spirit in eternity past. They're peering into it. Let me give you three recommended books to help increase your longing to look into salvation. Three recommended books to help you increase your longing to look into salvation. First is What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Secondly is Saved Without a Doubt by John MacArthur. Thirdly is Justification by Faith, Calvin. I put all of these on, on levels of difficulty. Easy, medium, hard. What is the Gospel? Saved Without a Doubt, Justification by Faith. How should you respond to this great salvation? Well, respond to this great salvation by first calling out for it, secondly, by rejoicing in it, thirdly, respond to this great salvation by taking it to your neighbors and the nations. To your neighbors and the nations. God has acted. God has acted through specific events in history to accomplish salvation. We call that salvation history. In the Old Testament, God's people were to stay and shine. God brought the nations, the message of salvation, by bringing the nations to Israel. Israel was to stay and shine. In the New Testament, God's people are to go and glow. We do not wait for the nations to come to us, we go to them. We do not wait for the neighbors to come to us, we go to them. God is not a tribal deity. And his salvation is not limited to a few select peoples or nations. Our family watched a, a National Geographic special on the secret formula of Coca-Cola. And they talked about how the formula may be the most closely guarded secret in American commerce. Something in that short doc caught my attention. Coca-Cola says, we've reached 99% of mankind. That means there are people who have tasted Coke that have never tasted Christ. There are people who have had their hands on a Coke that have never had their hands on a Bible. 
we've done a really good job in getting sugar water around the world and a really poor job of getting the salvation message around the world. Church, start with your neighbors, but go to the nations. Each week, we list an unreached people group on our worship guide. May the day come when we say there are no more unreached people groups. What are we going to put on that spot in the bulletin? We have maps and coordinates. We know where Coke has made it and the gospel has not. We have maps and planes, but we need messengers. Just, just last night, our family, we were watching on YouTube this unreached people group and how they made a living, how they really a self-sustaining farm. What blew my mind was I told my wife, I said, look on the table. No lights, no electricity, no contact with outside world. Look on the table. There's a Coke. There's a Coke on the table about an unreached people group. Peter's had his goal here. He's wanted to increase your appreciation for your salvation. Has Peter achieved his goal? Then glorify the author of that salvation. Praise the God of salvation. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.